IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we cover a variety of topics, including Bruce Springsteen, The Weeknd, and the dance punk revival. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's an even better music critic than Jamie Lee Curtis, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I'm going to start going by Ian Lee Cohen now. That's like my actual name, and just when you say Jamie Lee Curtis, it flows so well. But I mean... Your middle name is Lee? Yeah, it is. Wow. That Okay, why isn't this your byline? That is an awesome <laughs> byline. Like, uh, like Ian Lee Cohen? It's it like, really flows. It's like David Lee Roth or uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Dude, you have blown it for the last like 20 years, man. You could have been Ian Lee Cohen. I think you should transition into this in, yeah. uh, in your 40s. This should be your thing. I th- I'm going to start introducing you as Ian Lee Cohen. I love this. It's like it's like a little bit like more dignified, but you know, no, as far I, as like, it, it's more like hair metal. I think I, it, oh. it has like a real flair to it. I guess, yeah, uh, it's Jewish but hair metal, kind of like David <laughs> Lee Roth. I, I love it. I, I think. By the way, I, that's to cut you out, but I I uh, I just learned right before we started recording that today is Registered Nutritionist Day. Oh my fucking god! This is—it's dietitian. Like I'm—I'm I'm like joking, but not. Like if you call a dietitian a nutritionist, like that's—I don't know—that's like calling an emo band emo. Even if that's like sort of what they are, they kind of have to reflexively be insulted by that. Whoa, 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 wait. So like, because I was—I was feeling good that I was going to bring up registered nutritionist day to you because we're recording. Just to be clear, we're recording on Wednesday, March eighth. That is Correct. registered nutritionist day. But there is a there's like a. A rivalry between nutritionists and dietitians out on these so, streets? Yeah, registered dietitian is what I am. That's like the thing you have to like, you know, do an internship for and go through a program and get like certified. Whereas I believe you could, you know, finish this episode and say that you're a nutritionist. Most states don't have any sort of licensure with that. Oh. So basically... Um, I mean, it's not a huge deal. Like, you know, a patient once got me a mug that said, you know, uh, call me a nutritionist says no dietitian ever. And by the way, it's like, if you see someone like in the streets out there with a, like, you know, like a beats don't kale my vibe tote bag, they're probably a dietitian. Say hi to them. You know, it's, it's their day to shine. Actually, no, don't do that because, by the time this airs, it'll be Friday the tenth. Well, but you know what we we need we need the love. So yeah, I mean, because this is registered nutritionist day. So is this a mitigating factor at all? Because you're talking about nutritionists not being properly accredited, but this is singling uh, out the nutritionists who have done the work. You know, they. I don't know how you get registered as a nutritionist. Uh, you, the, you get uh, registered as a dietitian. A nutritionist is like kind of like life coach. It, think of it as like the difference between, say, life coach and a therapist. You know, um, there, there's a nutritionist listening to this episode right now, driving their car into a ditch <laughs> with rage for all this slander that you're dropping on the nutritionist community. I, I just hope you're prepared because you're 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 basically uh, you know. You're throwing hands at the nutritionist community right now. That's right. I want all the smoke with the nutritionists. 
Okay, so I made a Jamie Lee Curtis joke at the top of the episode because there was a story this week where Jamie Lee Curtis was at some red carpet event. And I don't know how this came up, but she went on this little rant about how she wishes that bands would play matinees. Mm. So she's like, Bruce Springsteen, U2, Coldplay, whoever. (laughs) Play a matinee. Play at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And she's saying, you know, because I'm an older woman, I don't want to go out at night. I want to go to bed at 7.30. So why not play a matinee? And this got a lot of traction online. And it does seem like an idea. Like when I first heard this quote, because like several people sent this clip to me. Hmm. And they're like, isn't this great? And I was like, yeah, it makes sense. And I was like, why doesn't this happen? And the thing I realized is that I think the reason why there's not matinees is because music venues make a big part of their money from liquor sales. And you can't just pour beer into your audience's mouth at like one o'clock in the afternoon without looking like you're contributing to, you know, the disintegration of the social fabric. Although now that I say that, that's basically what sports is. Yeah. You're, you're describing like on a Sunday or a Saturday, like football. Yeah, you're right. So like, why, I mean, what do you think about this? Do you wish that there were matinees? Like, and, and why do you think that there aren't? Well, there actually is a, um, Sometime next month in San Diego, there's a, a Seisha, like one of the like um, pioneers of Screamo. They're playing like a benefit show at three o'clock on a Sunday, which, hey, that sounds great. And Yeah, but that's I the mean, exception. Yeah, totally. It's an exception. But um, yeah, I mean, I've thought about this myself and it's kind of the same reason that uh, venues don't like to have all ages shows because, you know, you can't sell you know alcohol at those um, and they lose money. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think the difference is <laughs> uh, with, you know, like a football, like I've been to many, many football games where, you know, you get drunk at like t- 10 o'clock in the morning uh, and the game starts at like one and, you know, you just kind of have to not really pay too much attention. You're just there to like kind of uh, for the ambient experience. And maybe that's how you get down to Coldplay. You just want to get like completely fucking plastered and listen to Strawberry Swing. But um, I mean, I'm open to the idea, but I think that like with concerts, it's like, it needs to be more of a, it's like a social event, you know? It's like when I do a concert, I don't want to do like other stuff after it. Like that is the terminal of my day. Whereas with football, I don't know, you go home, you get dinner. I'm open to the possibility, but like, I don't see that happening. What I would want is not one o'clock i want the show to start at like six or seven you know like i'm done with work we get out it's like 10 or 11 o'clock like i think that is the middle path to walk no i disagree because if you're gonna (laughs) if you're gonna argue that it it should be a night the six seven o'clock hour should be for dinner and drinks you know you want to get dinner beforehand and then you go to the show so you either do that you either have to start at 7 30 or you start at one. Like, I like the idea of a matinee. And I do think that for some of these older acts, it would make sense to do it in the afternoon. Just as an experiment. Like, I maybe it would be weird. You know, like, oh, I, I just woke up and I'm eating breakfast. And now I'm going to go drive to the arena and see you too. <laughs> you know, that might be a little weird. I don't know. But maybe it'd be awesome. Um, yeah. 
I gotta say though that like when you say like oh six or seven o'clock is like the dinner or drinks hour, like I eat like someone who's like sixty five years old. I'm having dinner at like five or five thirty, so that's we have to put that into perspective. But even if you eat at five thirty, you can't really do that if the show starts at six. So now you're eating like at four o'clock. Now you're like I'll miss the opening band. Now you're going to like old country (laughs) buffet with like all of the senior citizens who go to bed at six o'clock. That's what you have to do now if the show starts at 6. I don't, I'm not sure about that idea. But I like the matinee idea. I would like someone to try that. Someone out there should be a trailblazer and see if they can do this. I feel like Chris only, Martin, I know you're listening. It's like Raffi probably does this, you know? <laughs> People like that. I feel like they do the early show because, you know, you got the kids. They can't be out late at night. Mm. Um but I feel like adults don't want to be out at night either. I think there's a lot of yeah. you, you get a certain you get to a certain age. It's like I don't want to be outside at when it's you know it's like uh, Livia on The Sopranos. You know, like she doesn't <laughs> drive when it's raining. Uh, you know, you don't want to drive when it's dark. Um, so we're doing like an all banter episode this week because we have like a lot of topics that we want to get to. Uh, and I, I I touched on some of them at the top of the episode. So we're, we're going to do the mailbag a little bit earlier today. There's no meat guarantee this this episode because we don't really have meat. It's all little it's a small plates tapas. in this episode. Yeah, tapas, uh, all apps. You know, you, you got some chicken <laughs> wings, got some fried pickle spears, uh, jalapeno poppers, of jala, course, jala, the blooming onion. Got all that stuff. <laughs> uh, do you want to read uh, our letter this week? Yeah, um, so this comes to us from um, Graham in Dallas, and uh, he, or it could be she, could be anyone, um, but nonetheless, Graham in Dallas asked that, um, he, they're bringing up that uh, I shared a Twitter performance of At The Drive-In on Conan, depressingly, 20 years ago. Gosh, that, that's at least 20 years ago. It's probably 22. Yeah. And like, and, uh, and this was like a few weeks ago. Cause this letter has been bumped a few yeah. times. We've been, we, we, you know, we've been too busy talking about ugly kid, Joe and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, incubus and stuff. And we, 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 well, we wanted to get to this letter. So yeah, it says this week, but I think this, I think he did like last month or something. Yeah. And you know, we, we talked about 93 and 99. We're, we're, we're back to the future in 2001. We're at the drive-in or playing like a dozen different late night shows, each one sloppier than the last and more awesome. So, uh, during the late nineties and aughts, I know I either discovered to, or came to newly appreciate lots of bands from watching late night shows, mostly Conan Letterman or Craig Ferguson. Some notable examples that come to mind are Radiohead playing fake plastic trees on Conan, my morning jacket playing my one big holiday on Conan. Ooh, future that's future a big Islands one. doing yeah, that, that one's definitely awesome. Uh, future Islands doing seasons on Letterman, that's the one that broke them big. And Warren Zevon on Letterman lots of times. Uh, so Graham wants to know if there are any bands that we discovered via late night TV and what are some of our late night performances. In the age of streaming, and it seems the death of late night TV, does something equivalent exist today? So this is a great question, Graham. I, I, I've written about this before. I wrote a big column last year, I think, talking about my favorite TV performances since 2000. And most of them are, are late night uh, performances. And the angle I took in the intro to that piece was that this has pretty much gone away. Like, I don't... I'm trying to think of, like, the last time that there was a live performance that just grabbed me 
And I think the Gang of Youth's performance on Seth Meyers is... It's like the last one that comes to mind. Like, I know people talk about Big Thief when they played Not on Stephen Colbert. I think that's like another one that Hmm. people reference as being like a great late night performance. But it seems like it doesn't happen very often anymore just because late night TV in general seems like it's in decline. And a lot of times they don't even have bands. I feel like bands back in the day, it was like every episode there'd be a band. And now it's like maybe once a week if that that they'll have a band on. I want to ask you quick, because I think we both have like a like like small list here of our favorite late night TV performances. Going back to the at the drive-in thing that you posted from Conan, is that the canonical at the drive-in <laughs> performance? Because like on my list, I had their performance on Letterman from that from that uh, tour cycle. And they, I think they do one arm scissor on both shows. And they're they pretty do. similar. But is the Conan one the canonical one? Because, like, Letterman was the one in my mind. And maybe because I was more of, like, a Letterman person back in the day. <laughs> I think, so, those two, like, I think you can go, that's, like, you know, Kid A versus OK Computer. Like, you can't go wrong with either one. But there's also, I think, a performance of that they do on British late night TV where they just completely, like, piss off Robbie Williams or Like, you know, Robbie Williams maybe, like, towards, like, the downslide of his career. And that that one, I don't know exactly which. It might be Jules Holland. But, like, that's the one where, like, it really gets deep into, like, the vocal pedals. Like, you really start to see the Mars Volta take shape on that one. And that's, like... I think the 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 guitar becomes unplugged halfway through. That's just straight up physical performance. They're like barely even playing. Um, they are like an all time oh, late night best. late night TV band. Like yeah, if you're making like the you know the Hall of Fame of late night TV bands, they're like a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, just killing it on every show. Like <laughs> like where we're where we're actually debating like which at the drive in performance is the best. You know that again it. I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I think that, again, highlights what I was saying before, that like you had this golden age of late night TV performances that seems so distant now. Like, I, I, I can't think of, like, there's just not that many memorable performances, like, from recent years that, well, that come to mind. Maybe we have to ask, like, somebody, like, younger. Um, but they would like, care even less, though. Like, maybe, some, yeah. someone younger, like, they don't, like, like if you're 20... Why would you care at all about late night TV? Like, 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 where of the generation where Conan and Letterman mattered? You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like if you're born in like 2002, like, why would you give a shit about any of this stuff? Like, to me, like Letterman was the greatest uh, appreciator of bands in late night TV because, like, he would get genuinely excited. About bands and like when Letterman would get excited about mm. like Dumb Dumb Girls or something. Like I remember when <laughs> Dumb Dumb Girls were on, he's like, "Oh, that's how we, you know, that's how you get it done there." And like you know, he'd go, <laughs> pray. and he always like loved drummers too. Like he would always fawn over drummers. I feel like, oh yeah. And uh, I mean, I feel like Seth Meyers is a legit music fan, and you could see like he's the one most likely, I think, to book indie bands that haven't been on television before. Like he booked Cheer Meg. But, you huh. know, a few years ago, bands like that. He seems like he's a genuine fan. I, but I, you know, Jimmy Kimmel. I, I don't know if he's a. He, he, I'm sure he owns some Dave Matthews CDs. But you know, other than that, I don't know if he's like a big yeah. fan of music or anything. 
Yeah, I mean, but I mean, who does? Who 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 of that age group doesn't own a few Dave Matthews albums? You know, you can't hold that against them. But I think that like this, with this gets to the kind of point of like what purpose um, late night TV serves. Um, you know, because I think an important point that Graham uh, makes is that he or she or they discovered bands uh, via late night TV, and to me, like even back in the day. I don't think I discovered any bands on late night TV. And that doesn't mean it's not a discovery tool. Like if you're a person who, you know, kind of consumes passively pop culture, you watch MTV or the radio back in 2001, you might not be aware of at the drive-in, but you see them. And like, that might be like one of the five CDs that you buy that year. You know what I mean? Um, it's more to me like a confirmation these days that like a band has reached a certain level, like even when like um, Wild Pink did CBS uh, this morning, you know, that kind of sh- let me know, OK, they've reached a point where they can be on TV. You know what I mean? Um, Turnstile is another example. Like they might be kind of an analog to uh, at the drive in in the sense that like, you know, you, as the song goes, you got to see it live to get it. And you see them like playing with such energy on stage. And it's like, Oh, they're making mute. People are making music like this. Like this looks really energetic and awesome. Even though like watching one of their hate five, six videos is like a way better advertisement for what they're about. It just kind of confirms to me that like a band has reached a certain level. Um, And you know what, there's probably a lot of, you know, for lack of a better term, normies out there who still, you know, see uh, the YouTube posted on the next day, like kind of similar to Saturday Night Live, how people talk about that show, not necessarily having watched it on Saturday night at like 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. It's more that like it disseminates via YouTube, um, you know, the next couple of days. So it has a longer half-life, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, and I think that underscores like why late night TV in general has faded and why these performances seem less special. Because like you said, if any of the if if a performance gets traction now, it's because people see it on their computer. It's not because they're actually watching the show. And mm-hmm. part of what made late night TV performances special was that that might be the only chance you get to see the band. You know, like if you were a Pearl Jam fan in 1993, seeing them on Saturday Night Live was like a pretty exciting thing because it's like you can't just go on your computer and watch a million other videos. I mean, this is right. like the only chance you get to see the band. But there was that window, again, I think, like, the last hurrah, I think, of this was, you know, like, late aughts, early 2010s, like, where music websites would write about late night performances, and they would be they would go viral. And, yeah. you know, like, the Future Islands, Future Islands is, yeah. like, the, the go-to example of that. Uh, but there's other examples, and, like, I made a mini list of things that I still remember and I still watch that I think are just classic performances. And, and these, again, are like from the last 20 years. Uh, but TV on the radio on David Letterman doing Wolf Like Me. Yeah, total that classic. That, that, like, that's kind of like that. That performance I know has been brought up by quite a few artists. I know like Barty Strange has brought that up of like watching that and thinking like, holy shit, I, you know, not necessarily, oh, I can be that guy, but more like I can do this. Like yeah. that's a, that's a real, like that was a real game changer. I know for a lot of people. Total classic. I actually think they did it twice on Letterman. I think they did yeah. it again later, but like the first one <laughs> is the classic one. Uh, the Walkman doing the rat on Conan O'Brien. I think oh, it's yeah. a classic performance. The drummer in that band whose name I cannot remember. 
just yeah, a complete I, beast. I can't either. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, dude, I'm sorry. We're going to call you the beast. You know, I'm sorry we can't remember your name, but you're the beast. Um, <laughs> the National doing Terrible Love on Jimmy Fallon, like three months before High Violet came out. And it yeah, was, that's like your that's like your definitive version of that song, right? It is. Well, and they, and that's how they play it live now. And mm-hmm. uh they and I, but they they fucked it up on the record, but they play it like they play it on Fallon now where it's like this anthemic awesome song and that was great. Jimmy Fallon actually is a good music show. I think his old late night show in particular was really good. That's because another thing that we could say is the Odd Future performance. Yeah. Uh, it, it, totally iconic from there. Mm. Uh, and then I was going to say, and this is a little bit more obscure, but I remember it. I think it's great. Is Deer Hunter doing Monomania on Jimmy Fallon. I don't know if you remember this. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. It's sort of like their version of Terrible Love where it's like that. It's, you know, it's a good song on the record, uh, but I think that's like the definitive performance. And um, people might actually remember that one more so than like the actual, like Monomay is a good record, but I think that, um, you know, that performance was perhaps like, that was like the last deer hunter moment. I think like the last like deer hunter newsworthy type moment. And and for people who haven't seen it, what makes it so memorable, not only the performance is great, but like Bradford Cox is like dressed mm-hmm. up in this sort of glam rock decadent costume. He has like a bandage on his finger that I don't know if he was actually bleeding or if that's fake blood. But then at the end of the song, he walks off stage and the camera follows him as he like walks through the bowels of 30 mm-hmm. Rock. And it's a very theatrical performance, but it, you know, it, it I think is a pretty brilliant use of television to really make a performance seem special. You know, mm-hmm. it feels like an event when you're watching it. And again, I, I just don't feel, I, I feel like that medium as a way to move the needle, it's just been really diminished. I, I, and, and it's like a million, it's one of the million things you can blame the internet for, <laughs> you know, but I, I think it feels like that moment has passed. Yeah. I, I do miss it. I still like it. it the, there's still like ones that I like prefer to watch. I think the gang of youths one, uh, where they play on Seth Meyers, like even though this, the sound is just like awful, like the, the sound mixing just makes no sense. And I think that gets to a point of like how, uh, you know, a lot people may be like shying away from this because like very few bands, particularly on Saturday Night Live, sound good. They've just it's been like sixty years and we've just not mastered uh sound mixing on like a TV show. I think Top of the Pops or whatever like kind of got the right idea of just like putting a band on there and lip syncing, <laughs> you know? I always felt like on the other shows, bands sounded good though. You know, like on Conan, Letterman, mm-hmm. like I, 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 there is something Better. about yeah. like, you know, like the Lorne Michaels produced shows for whatever reason, <laughs> the sound mix is always kind of janky. I don't know why yeah. that is. The Jack Antonoff of like late night, like executive producers or whatever. So, Let's transition back to our banter here, and I, which I guess is the meat. I guess you yeah. know the, 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 it, it's a it's a tapas meat episode, and we're well ahead 
of the guarantee. So it's, it's 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 Brazilian barbecue. You know, we're bringing out like skewers of meat, like not all at once, but you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're getting it. It's just not like a plate of like you're not getting a T-bone. You're getting like the skewers of like pork and uh, beef and chicken. You know, it, it's it's consistent. Yeah, and this is the blooming onion right now. We're bringing this out right now. We're <laughs> and, and and the twice baked potato is going to be coming right after this. Are we at Fogo de Chao or are we at Outback? We I we're both, know. baby. We're both. Um, so I saw Bruce Springsteen this week, uh, and the E Street Band. They were there as well. Amazing show. Loved it. I was extremely fortunate because I'm a priv- I'm a privileged member of the media. I got a press ticket and I was in the pit. So I had an amazing spot. Bruce at one point was about three feet away from me. He was sweating on me. I had Bruce sweat all over me. It was incredible. Um, and I wrote about this for Uprock. So I, I'm not going to talk at length about this show. You can read my review. Because I don't know how much you care about Bruce Springsteen. Oh, uh, I care about Bruce Springsteen. Do you care about I Bruce mean, Springsteen? Like, are you I care fan? about I care about the boss. I've never seen him live. And like when you said I was in the pit, I'm just like imagining like Bruce doing one of his monologues about like, let's open up this fucking pit. Like, uh, <laughs> but it's not, it's like an arena rock pit. But no, I had a major Bruce Springsteen phase in college. And like, I'm not like an expert on Bruce by any means. Like, um, you know, I could, if we were to do a future episode where we like rank his albums or like his studio albums, you know, and cut off like after, uh, hu- after Human Touch, you know, I could do that. Um, you know, I, I'm a, but I've never seen him live. And I think, you know, when I was reading your piece, which uh, if you are listening to IndieCast, like I highly recommend reading it. It's um, it's like just a really resonant piece about like you know the passage of time and uh, this particular artist and um, you know with with Bruce Springsteen, um, I think that he is like I, we use the word iconic a lot, and Bruce Springsteen like is an actual icon or like an avatar, and that like so much of our views on like what classic rock should be what an artist should be like what an artist should stand for like every time he's on stage for three hours we're like we are like one show closer to not ever getting this anymore and i think that's the kind of um the message that comes across um also like he talks a lot in that in that piece about like i'm so old i'm so old i'm so old I, I looked up his age. He's like seven years younger than Joe Biden. And I feel like that's only like, that's like way closer in age than I expected. Yeah, like, I know. Exactly. I mean, and it, it does highlight how amazing it is that this dude is still doing three hour concerts. Like the paradox of Bruce Springsteen is that a, a major theme of his recent work. And this goes back at least to his memoir, Born to Run that he put out in 2016 is reflecting on his own mortality and, and writing about you know friends of his that have died and you know his parents died and loved ones have died and you know it's natural that a man his age will be writing about this and thinking about it. It's a major theme of his last studio record of original material, which is Letter to You, came out three years ago. So he's ruminating on death, but at the same time he is second only to Mick Jagger. And being sort of maniacally committed to staying physically fit. Like, his body is, like, 
pretty damn solid for a man his age. And he's like th- the, he's like an expen- he could be like an honorary expendable. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he does. Like Mick, does. Mick Jagger is like kind of wiry and like lizard like, whereas like Bruce Springsteen, man, that guy. He 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 could be like Tulsa King status. Yeah, and, there, and, there, and there's one point in the show, toward the end, like where he like rips his shirt open, and then he's <laughs> of course. And it's like right, it's uh, right before Tenth Avenue freeze out because then he walked out onto the platform in the middle of the arena and was like singing to people, and that's when I was close to him, and his shirt was open, and he has like yeah, you're right, like these Stallone esque pectoral muscles <laughs> glistening with sweat bulging out very tanned very yes. you know leathery pectoral <laughs> muscles uh, and you can convince yourself watching him like oh this guy's never gonna stop like he can do this forever because he just looks so fit but he can't do it forever and i did I, it, and he's even kind of hinted mm-hmm. that like at some point he's gonna pivot to being more of like a johnny cash probably type person where mm-hmm. He'll be performing, but he he won't be doing these like gargantuan shows. That, you know, maybe he'll be sitting on a stool playing an acoustic guitar. You know, right. like in high fidelity. <laughs> yeah, you know, hopefully, you know, because I mean, and he again, he seems very healthy. So you know, hopefully, we have like twenty five, thirty years more of Bruce to enjoy. But I did think watching the show, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to see this again. Like, how many more tours can this band do? You know, because they're just, I mean, and maybe, you know, because like the Stones are still touring, they're in their 80s, but you know, you have to think about these things when you see a band like that. It's also making me think like, okay, you have Bruce and the Stones, they're like sort of at the top right now of the arena rock chain in terms of age. They're the most uh, uh, experienced. And then the next tier you have like U2, mm-hmm. Foo Fighters. Is there a tier after that? Or are these Coldplay, like play the... you can't call it rock really, I guess. I don't no, know. No, but like they're no, you're right though, but they're like a U two. Yeah. Type band. So yeah. they would be there. Just I'm trying to just I, I mean Metallica. You gotta put Metallica with that U two mm. uh Foo Fighter. And you have the chili peppers are also in there. Oh yeah, of course, tier. of course. I mean they're playing a stadium here in Minneapolis next month. So they're oh yeah, st- and, and 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 Bruce is playing stadiums this summer, um, so he can play stadiums too. But mm-hmm. I'm just thinking with the pivot for Bruce, like I mean, I, I you know, like is there an end like of arena rock? Like for bands, yeah, perhaps. Like I don't like you know we're gonna we could possibly be seeing like Taylor Swift or oh, yeah, um, and the weekend, know, the weekend, the weekend playing like stadiums like well into their fifties or sixties. Of course, though that like. You know, it, it just remains to be seen, like, what that's going to look like, you know, for a bit. Because, like, Metallica, like, yeah, they look pretty rough. But, like, you can kind of <laughs> see how they're, you know, they they kind it kind of works when you're thinking about, like, yeah. rock music. It they is look, like they, they look pretty good for their, I mean, Hetfield. I mean, he looked yeah. rough. He looked rough in yeah. the 90s, you know. I mean, he's still, <laughs> yeah. he looks pretty good. I mean, you know, arenas are obviously not the ideal place to see music but like when i was watching bruce it just drove home again like this is the he's the best to Mm -hmm. do it in arenas like he can make you forget that you're in an an arena like because i've been to arena shows that were really boring Mm -hmm. you know where it's like ah, i wish this was in a club or a theater you know like i'm not feeling any connection but bruce's music is so big 
that it's in a way enhanced because it's in an arena. Mm-hmm. And uh, that seems like maybe like a, a lost art, you know? Because I think even these other people we're talking about, I don't know if they're better in, a, in an arena. You know, right. they play these venues because they're really popular. Like Taylor Swift, I've never seen her live, so I can't speak one way or the other about that. Uh, how you know, whether she works in that space. Because you know, it's a different conversation of like, are they a good performer? Because there's a lot of good performers, but there's there's not that many performers where if you put them in that humongous venue, you're glad that they're in that venue. Most of the time mm-hmm. you feel like, oh, I wish I, I wish I could be closer. But with right. Springsteen, you know, because I had great seats for this show, but I, I've seen him in stadiums like where I was in the second to last row and he was like a little tiny dot and it was still a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that seems like a really unique thing. I, I don't know if there's many people that can step into that role in in the same way that he did. I guess you know, Grohl, Dave Grohl is so much. He's mm-hmm. so committed to being like the rock ambassador that yeah. it seems like he's like preordained to take over that role if if Bruce ever steps aside. But I don't know. It's not not quite the same thing, though, to me. No. Foo Fighters just never have that real sense of, like, meaning to their music that Bruce does. And, I mean, just the one thing that that I'm thinking of with, like, Bruce, just when you're talking about, like, how populist he is and how great he is in arenas and so forth and also, like, his advancing age and what the pivot's like. If he ran for... If he was in like the Democratic primary in 2024, he could fi- he'd finish no worse than second, right? <laughs> like would Obama endorse his podcast buddy or Joe Biden? I think that's like what the kind of uh, drama we need to like spice oh, man. spice up what what's probably just going to be Biden. But I'm like, who who like I, the, the it would like completely neutralize the election. Like what fucking Republicans going to run against Bruce Springsteen? Like. I I I I, I real like, and he's seventy three. That guy's like fucking spry, man. Yeah, like, I, I I think that's the direction. I love I love the scenario of, of uh, Obama having to decide <laughs> who to endorse, Bruce Springsteen or Joe Biden. I definitely think he would. I definitely think he he likes Bruce Springsteen more than Joe Biden. I have no doubt about that. But <laughs> is it more politically feasible? to endorse Joe Biden. I don't know. I think he would go with Bruce. I think he I think would, he go, would with go with Bruce too. So, I wanted to talk to you about this story that dropped last week. It was right after we put out our episode and it was a it was a Rolling Stone story about the weekend and his upcoming, I assume it's still upcoming, yeah. <laughs> HBO drama called The Idol. And it's a collaboration with Sam Levinson, who is the guy in charge of Euphoria, one of the big breakout hits on HBO of recent years. And this show, apparently it's about a budding pop star played by Johnny Depp's daughter, Lily Rose Depp. And she gets uh, taken under the wing of this Fingali-type figure played by The Weeknd. And apparently this show... It's like a very chaotic production. They had a director, a very uh, acclaimed indie actress and director named Amy Simetz. Mm-hmm. She directed most of the season, and then she departed. It's not clear if she was fired or if she left voluntarily, but she left the show. 
and they decided to scrap the entire season at the cost of like fifty million dollars, or it's like fifty to seventy million. It's a lot. It's a lot like, of money. Ridiculous, yeah. like write off. And they're redoing the the, uh, the season with Sam Levinson in charge, and they were reporting. The story is reporting on, you know, the the turn that the show has taken because apparently it originally had maybe more of like a like a feminine perspective, more told from the perspective of Louis Rose Depp. And apparently, the weekend said this show is too feminine. <laughs> we need to sex yeah. this up or something. So now it's going to, apparently there's like just tons of sex scenes in it and like really weird stuff going on. Like there's one scene that I remember from the story. Apparently this didn't get filmed, but they threw out the idea of having Lily Rose, Lily Rose Depp's character put a egg in her vagina yeah. and cracking the egg or something. Some, yeah. some sort of egg like and vagina that. thing going on. <laughs> Yeah, there's that. There's like a lot of like Nexium cult sort of parallels as well. Like, yeah. A, a lot of this just kind of reminds me of like the stuff the weekend would like play in the background during the Kissland tour. <laughs> like, all, like there, like I distinctly recall seeing him at like the Greek Theater in L.A. and there was like he would just throw on some like Japanese porn while singing um whatever songs there were on Kissland. I completely forgot what's on that record. It's so weird that Kissland. Is technically his debut because yeah. the first three albums are are mixtapes. Mixed so like, right. House of Balloons is not his debut album. Kissland is his debut album, even though everyone <laughs> considers House of Balloons his debut album. It's very confusing. Right. But anyway, you know, Twitter predictably, predictably went nuts over this story. The weekend responded with a tweet at Rolling Stone, and it's a clip of this show. That hasn't been released yet, but it's a clip where The weekend is talking with uh, uh, his publicist, played by Dan Levy. And he's basically talking about how irrelevant Rolling Stone is in this clip. Right. So it's like you know, tweaking Rolling Stone. Um, I wanted to bring this up to you because it just made me think, like, you know, people were going nuts about The weekend, And I, I'm wondering, like, is he too big to cancel at this point? Because I, I think it's pretty clear that he is. Uh, I feel like this story, if it were about anyone else, it would have had some sort of impact. But with The weekend, I feel like the net result of this story is probably neutral. Mm-hmm. And if not neutral, positive. Like, slightly positive. Because people are going to want to watch this show. Oh, I know totally. I, I want to watch this show, especially if it's bad. If it's yeah. bad, I'm going to watch the whole thing for sure. Because it has a train wrecky type uh, you know, vibe from this story. It just seems like, you know, there's people who love the weekend and people who hate him. I don't see this affecting him either way. And I just wonder like what could he do to get canceled? <laughs> I mean, I feel the thing with the weekend is that like he's never done anything you know, uh, like he's never like assaulted anyone, right? It's they, not as far as I know. He's just like kind of a creepy guy. But he's that's a creepy like guy so, who sings been, like sleazy lyrics. Like that's yeah. the knock against him, right? And it's like been baked into his like entire persona from the jump. Um, and also, I think it's worth mentioning that as we record this episode, the weekend has the number one song in the country, and it's it's a song that's six years old. <laughs> right? It's like. Uh, Ariana Grande remix. I heard this uh, when I went to 
get ice cream the past weekend. Um, it's, you know, it was a TikTok hit. It became a viral hit. And so, uh, yeah, he's his six-year-old weekend song is now the number one song in the country. Uh, I cannot wait till Tom, our guy Tom Bryan gets to like this era of explaining number one hits <laughs> and like how how that's come to be. But uh, and also like I, I think that the thing that neutralized, I mean, like let's just be very clear. A lot of the stuff that they talk about in this story just sounds like it just sounds like a really fucking like actual toxic place to work at, and it's uh, it's also the exact kind of show I would have expected the weekend to make if he was given $50 million in 2013, you know, for all the laundering of his image that he's done in the past five years, he's still very much the character he plays in uncut gems, which is himself, like basically trying to uh, convince Julia Fox to have sex with him. Uh, Yeah. It's like he he's him. And like, I think anytime his actual personality comes out, you get the sense that, like, he's exactly the kind of guy he talks about in his music. And I think that, like, to a degree, I don't want to say this helps him, but it kind of does distinguish him from, you know, pop artists for who it's assumed that... I mean, when you compare him to, say, like, Harry Styles, I think <laughs> that there's, like, a component of his on-camera just not, like, particular... Like, like, completely like on record or on set type toxicity that like draws people in just because it's counter programming to everything else going on in pop music. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing with, in, I'm going to revisit this when we talk about dance punk here in a few minutes, but I do think we're in a moment where there is a hunger in the 2020s for scumbag music. And you, I mean, you like you've talked about like shittiness, like you like shittiness in I bands, love the shittiness, and that's something that draws you to the 1975. I think there's a definite shittiness element to the weekend. And look, mm-hmm. he's not new. I mean, he's been around a long time. I would say, yeah, I, mean, I guess Taylor Swift is probably the biggest pop star in the world. But if it's not her, it's the weekend. I mean, it is neck and neck, and it might be the weekend. I think Harry Styles is probably bigger. I think the weekend is bigger just because he has a longer track record. But I don't know. Maybe if you're considering the One Direction as part of Harry Styles, yeah, I, I mean, do. And I think I think the fan intensity for uh, Harry Styles is way, way, way bigger. See, the thing with the weekend that's interesting to me is that he does have this persona, like you said, of he's a scumbag singing about his scumbag life, which, by the way, <laughs> was the norm for pop music when I was growing up. Like I grew up listening to Guns N' Roses and NWA and the Ghetto Boys and <laughs> scumbags talking about being scumbags. Like that was the formula. People loved it. And the weekend is proof that people still love it. It's a very commercial formula. You take a catchy song and you add lyrics about being a horrible person. It works. People like it. It's interesting. It's dramatic. You know, that goes back at least to the blues. You know, we could go back 100 years. You know, Robert Johnson did not have a progressive view of men and and women relationships. You know, women are literally the devil in his songs. You know, I mean, so this is nothing new. Um, But there's also an element with The Weeknd. I think there's a big part of his audience that doesn't know anything about him. They just like his songs. Like, like my my kids love Blinding Lights and, uh, you know... Uh, I feel it coming, and you know some of his big hits. They're, How do they just, feel about Glass Table Girls? Well, I don't think they go that deep, <laughs> but you know they don't care about the lyrics. You know, like, you know a lot of people don't listen to lyrics. They don't. They, they, they couldn't yeah. care less. And I think I, I think the weekends captured like that audience a, too. 
I, I think about when I was listening to um, George Michael's faith in like, you know, and when I was seven years old, I was definitely not getting the message of like, I want your sex or monkey, you know? Yeah, or like father figure, like, oh, the, psychos, right. <laughs> the psychosexual uh, consequences of this song. I was not pondering that. I just thought, oh, this is a cool song. And then PM Dawn samples it. And I like that too. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think The Weeknd, he's, I, look, I like The Weeknd. I'm a fan of his music. I mean, I don't. When I say I like the weekend, I'm not talking about him personally, right? Although, again, I am I kind of going with what you were saying. I am intrigued by scumbaggery in music if it's not <laughs> literal scumbaggery. You know, to yeah. me, there's a difference between actions and lyrics. You know, and maybe that's just because of how I grew up. I, I'm used to despicable lyrics and songs you know and people and and i feel like there's a higher threshold for me with lyrics in in terms of me holding that against an artist i feel like that's part of the art and unless you're actually doing these things in real life and hurting people that's a different story but if you're just singing about this stuff i do think that's a form of escapism for people it's the same reason why they watch gangster movies or play violent video games it, as long as it doesn't translate to actual you know abhorrent behavior I I don't know I I have a hard time saying oh you're canceled because of that yeah I think that there's like the the implication that like the weekend in person is the guy that he portrays himself to be on the record and you know like not is he I though I mean is there evidence I don't of that? know there, there's just like a lot of implicate implications on uh, in that Rolling Stone piece that it's just like a really shitty environment. But like, again, it just sounds like a complete clusterfuck on all levels. And you know, I am so much more interested in watching this show now than I was <laughs> when I first heard about it. Um, I feel like uh, we need to talk quick about big news in the Ian Cohen world. Ooh. And you should take the lead on this, I guess. Talking yeah. about the hotel year, it sounds like. They're going to have a comeback this year? Uh, Emo Legends? Emo Legends, (laughs) the hotel year? Yeah. uh, I found this out in, like, you know, the most Christian Holden way, which is that they posted on... um, they posted on Twitter, like, they were having this, like, chatbot conversation with, like, Sweetwater, the... um, the music uh, retailer, which, by the way, if you buy anything from Sweetwater or, like, Guitar Center, they are going to call you every other week asking how things are going. So that seems legit. But, um, you know, at the end of it, they get into, as they are prone to do, some deep philosophical questions about, like, the nature of existence and friendship and capitalism, and also that they are probably getting together to play some shows, Um, which... That sounds great. Uh, I'm not expecting any new music. I don't necessarily want new music if they don't want to do it. Like Christian said that they're not going to make another Hotel Year album until the revolution happens, like kind of jokingly, but also quite seriously. They're just an interesting person in that like they get involved in so many uh, flights of fancy that it does not sound like they really want to be in a kind of, um, you know, semi-popular emo band, (laughs) and which is great. I think Goodness ended their career on a perfect note. But, you know, we are rounding the corner on a 10-year anniversary of Home Like No Place Is There, um, you know, next uh, February. And I think for their sake, like, I I always predicted that if they were going to come back and do, like, an actual tour, it would be for that album, um, and you know, part of me like wonders if that is the case again, I have no 
inside information beyond like what they post on Twitter. I'm just sort of wondering what those 10 year anniversary shows are going to be like, because they were kind of like, not like as, as revered as they are. They like, even amongst like emo revival bands, they weren't that popular. Well, um, this is the thing I wanted to ask you because, you know, I'm a casual listener of this band. I like this band, but I remember on my old podcast, Celebration Rock, you were my guest when we talked about our favorite albums of the 2010s. And I think you had two Hotel Year albums in your top five. I almost certainly did, and I probably still would. And I was like, really? And you were like, really? <laughs> And really? I was like, okay. <laughs> and like, where? So, like, like, where? What is their legacy at this point? Like, are they Sunny Day Real Estate at this point? Because I feel like they're not. I feel like they're they haven't reached like that sort of iconic status. Like, they weren't like Sunny Day Real Estate had an audience in its day, but like they weren't a huge band. And then there was some time after their initial run of records, and I feel like their stature grew a bit in that scene. Has that happened to the hotel year? Or are they still in flux? Or are we are we not far enough removed yet from those records? Like, what what's their reputation in twenty twenty three? It's really tough to say because I mean, like, Sunday Real Estate is a band that was like on sub pop. Like, I mean, for a long time, Diary was one of the best selling records on that label. Um, and you know, they played they played late night shows. I love watching their John Stewart. Perform- it was a uh, the MTV show that John Stewart hosted. Uh, their performance of In Circles and Seven, also a great one. But, you know, I think that just even e- even more so than like the second wave bands of like, you know, Sunny Day or Braid or, uh, you know, American Football or Promise Ring, like the, the, the level of visibility for the hotel year is so much smaller. Like in about a month, I'm going to see Sunny Day Real Estates uh, do their comeback tour in San Diego and they're playing like, you know, in a, a 1,000 cap room, like the same place that, you know, I recently saw a Manchester orchestra, let's say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that if they do a Home Like No Place is their tour, you know, it'll 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 do well in like, you know, a 300, 500 cap room in whatever city you're into. But like they were never as ambitious as a lot uh, the bands from like, you know, the Sunday real estate era, nor even like the bands from their own era, you know, because like uh, one of the themes of everything that Christian Holden has done since uh, they, since goodness, which was seven fucking years ago has been about like, just not really wanting to go through the grind of like, you know, doing tours just to do tours or uh, doing festivals just to do them. Um, They just, their ambition or like lack thereof, as far as like, you know, the way I want them to be popular has been a little bit frustrating in a way, but I think it's kind of perfect as far as like where they're at. So you know, I don't think that it's going to be a sensation when they come back. It'll just be like it was in 2016 yeah. or like the people like myself are just going to be like super fucking stoked. And, you know, uh, they sounded great last time they played live, which was at uh, the counterintuitive uh, holiday show in Boston. Um, so, you know, I'm looking forward to it and I just kind of want them to do their thing. Um, yeah, I mean, like- I'm not as invested in their popularity. Yeah, I mean, the people that love them are, like, obsessive about them. They're putting both albums in their top fives, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And then the, 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 it's like the Velvet Underground here. They got a Velvet Underground-like <laughs> following. And it's yeah. like, you know, in, we're in, like, 1974, like, a couple years after their peak. And now the legend is still growing. Um, quickly here, I want to talk to you about dance punk 
and the possible revival of dance punk of the like early 2000s or mid 2000s variety. And this is inspired because you, you DM me this week about this band called The Dare. Yes. And they're a new band. They only have like two songs. Each song <laughs> is about two minutes long. And I want to read what you said. You prefaced it with, <laughs> they're like LMFAO doing LCD sound system. And I was like, oh boy, I got to hear this song. And I played it and uh, it's a pretty stupid song. <laughs> but... It was stupid in a way that I appreciated. And I, I, do you want to talk about this band? I mean, I do. Set up this band because there's some other. There's at least one other band doing something similar, and I just wonder if maybe we're on the verge of a revival here. But yeah, talk talk about this band, The Dare. I feel like all of our listeners need to listen to this band and and yeah. have a laugh. So th- this is such a fascinating thing because, you know, throughout 2022, people talked about like the return of indie sleaze and it was like more just this kind of, I don't know, it, it was like this media creation. But like, here's this band, The Dare, that's like actually going to get signed to a major label and like has like really popular songs. Before we like talk about like what this band is right now, we got to talk about like the person in this band. Her name is Harrison Smith. And they were in a band like this like real like indie slash emo band called turtleneck. And like, I gave them a pretty harsh review in uh, 2017 and you know, they kind of took that to heart. Like they made a video in 2018 for a song called today where like they get like a text message from Ian Cohen. They put me in the video. So like they're wow. kinda, they've been, they've been kind of shit posty. I mean, between that and a new proto martyr album and like the enduring, popularity of were which our friend of the pod eli enos talked about my ops are thriving right now um but this 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 artist like they were kind of shit posty back then and they're still kind of shit posty right now and they just like kind of stumbled on this thing that like has actually connected and they're just kind of doing it it's uh, like lcd sound system like people are like oh this is just like a pale ripoff of like lcd sound system in the rapture but it's like Think of it like Cobra Starship or like LMFAO. And it's like, it's somehow, I don't know, captured the imagination of, I I don't know if people really like this band or whether it's just like kind of a funny thing to talk about. But I think that they're just kind of cool in the sense that like that whole era of like meet me in the bathroom as being like very museum piece. And it was also a time for like people who like, really just wanted to do coke and like act shitty unironically, which is also a huge part of the meet me in the bathroom book that kind of got downplayed in the documentary. Again, like you're saying, it's like there is this desire for indie sleaze that has just kind of sublimated into this song called girls. Yeah. I mean, I think we're starting to see a pendulum swing in this decade from the previous decade, which was very serious, very, taking people to task for Mm. bad behavior, which was a necessary development, of course. But at some point, it starts to just feel scoldy and not a lot of fun. And there does seem to be a desire out there to be stupid and and have a party. And, And I do think that, you know, when we talk, you know, there's been this conversation in the culture about, like, why are teenage girls depressed? It seems like a lot of people are depressed. Yeah. <laughs> and I do wonder if all of this culture that we consume about trauma and mental health and figuring out, you know, getting your mind right, which again are very important things, but 
the fixation on that at some point, I think, becomes a burden. And you just need to hear songs about, like, having a fucking party. You know, like, sometimes, <laughs> like, that is the best thing for your mental health, is to right. not think about your mental health, but to have a fucking party. And when you play, like, when you, you know, told me about this band, I was like, okay, this feels like it's maybe in line with that. And I, I wonder... Because this is like, again, they only have two songs. So like there hasn't been like much written about this band that I've seen. And they are sort of at the beginning. So it'll be, I'll be curious to see what critics say about them. I, I, I suspect that they will not be critically acclaimed. That, they that, will not be critically They will not acclaimed. be. Uh, <laughs> but it made me think about another band that you talked about on the show recently and that I've been listening to a bit. Uh, this band, Model Actress. Yes. That uh, is critically acclaimed. But they also fall under this dance punk umbrella, and the lead singer has a very, uh, you know, it's, it's like a self-conscious rock star type type vibe, and there is, uh, you know, all that, very decadent. Yes, very decadent. And after you talked about it on the show, I, I checked out the record, and I, I messaged you that this felt to me like upscale Monoskin, and <laughs> and I meant that as a compliment because I don't hate Monoskin, but right. you know. To me, like those bands are more similar than they're not. Like there is, with Monoskin, it is again like a dancey rock band. There are there. It's a very self conscious rock star vibe. Um, it's just that model actress does it in a way that appeals to critics. I do wonder if that has something to do with model actress being fronted by a gay man, mm-hmm. and which is different than like. Some, you know, some bro singing about this kind of stuff. I, th- I think <laughs> right. that that makes it feel more palatable to critics and maybe more subversive because right. it's not, although there are a lot of decadent gay male rock stars in rock history. I mean, start, <laughs> yeah. you know, starting with like yeah. Freddie Mercury, like one of the greatest rock stars of yeah. all time. So it's not like, the, or you know, so it's not like that's unique or anything, but um, I don't know, like the model actress it's just interesting, like the degree of seriousness with 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 which that record has been written about, mm-hmm. compared to like Monoskin, which is just like dismissed out of hand. And I think that they're they're kind of coming from a similar place. I think Model Actress does it better than Monoskin, but like philosophically, I don't think it's that different. It's really not, and I think that um, when we talk about like indie sleaze, like when we talk about like the decadence of um, you know Model Actress, I mean, if you read the lyrics. Um, like they are real ripe right there. It is like purple as fuck. Um, which again, like I didn't pay a heck of a lot of attention when I first listened. I'm like, okay, this shit bangs. This reminds me of the band Health, you know, which was kind of like a himbo take on Nine Inch Nails, which was a pretty himbo, like decadent uh, band itself. I mean, you look at the Wish video; that is like high homoerotic <laughs> art. But um, you know, with Model Actress. Um, <laughs> Uh, you like the with the Monoskin comparison. It's like I think with them, what they're coming from is in terms of indie sleaze, and I think this is also true of Dare. It's that this band has to be from New York. You know, it's like it is because oh, we hear a lot about like how their live shows are like subversive and they're dangerous and they're highly sexual, and also like most of the people writing about them, like that show's happening right down the street, you know, <laughs> they can see that. <laughs> right. Um, so I think that this kind of gets into not, I think a big part of like indie sleaze or dance punk or like this era 
that people may or may not want to revive is that it centered New York in a way that hasn't really been the case over the past uh, couple of decades. I mean, like Philadelphia has just been whipping ass, but like Philadelphia is kind of a more blue collar sort of modest city, which is kind of aligned with the the way Indie Rock has been going. But, you know, this band um, just kind of makes you think of like the, the kind of like gutter shitty, like doing bad Coke off like a, a like off a, a Honda Civic key next to the waterfront sort of vibe, you know, that we were t- that people want to, you know, people want to have. And I just think it's kind of funny, though, that like when I everything I read about this band just leads me to believe that like it may there may be more of a put on than we're willing to believe. I mean, like I saw the, um, you know, the pitchfork profile and for some reason they're dressed like fucking neutral milk hotel. Like <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know if that was like the intention, but like I, do, when I read about them, I mean, like, I think there's a part of me that like feels sort of pandered to like all evoke beach slang. Like, and again, that's oh, like man. another very problematic band, but it's very clear that like, I allowed certain critical faculties to be shut down because they just reminded me of like a bygone era that I miss dearly. Like in the same way that like they fill the Japan droids void. It's like, this is man. I, I want to like, I want to remember what it was like to be 23 and think house of jealous lovers is the most profound fucking thing I've heard in my life. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So we're going to stick with the theme of just celebrating, like, really dumb, not dumb as in, like, it's stupid, but, like, dumb as in, like, kind of dumb out sort of, uh, dumb out music. Like, music that just kind of speaks to the more uh, lizard brain aspect of, um, you know, of what we do. And, you know, next week, maybe we'll get more into, like, you know, the cerebral shit, but, um... There's a, there's a UK, I guess you could call him a rapper. For the most part, he raps. His name is Slow Tie. And, you know, I'm aware of his existence. I haven't really listened to much of his stuff before. Um, he's one of these rappers that you can typically find on, like, you know, Glastonbury or other rock-leaning festivals. Um, and I heard that his new album, Ugly, was, like, more, like, post-punk. Um, you know, he's performed with idols. And, uh, you know, he's got, like, Fontaine's DC on this album. So... All those two things would probably not have me inclined to check it out, but I was talking to someone whose taste I trust a lot, and he's like, yeah, I'm not into his old stuff, but I like this Slow Tie album, and I listened to it at the gym, and it completely fit the need of like just dumb outrage for rage sake music. Um, it's probably the only post-punk, like classic kind of post-punk album I'll like in 2023. Um, and you know what? If I were 16 years old, this would probably completely alter my worldview. Like most of the songs are about like how, you know, depression and like the evil voices in his head telling him to drink and do coke and like have sex and cheat on his partner. And um, yeah, it, this if I'm like at the gym, which is in like a very, very uh, plain stated way, just me lifting heavy objects for no reason whatsoever, I need dumb out music for that. Like I don't need like, you know, uh, this anger to be directed at, like, say, certain political structures. I don't need it to be, like, anything deeper than what it is. And it just kind of does remind me of, like, being 
19 or hearing Eminem and just like, I don't relate to what he's saying, but I'm like, you know, I need to feel pissed off. I need to get this out of my system. So if, uh, if any of that appeals to you whatsoever, uh, slow ties ugly. I think that'll, I, I think that's the kind of dumb out music you need in 2023, at least for right now. See, I like that. There's a, there's a thread in our show of you talking about music that you listen to at the gym. That is yes. definitely a big genre in Ian Cohen music. Whereas I, I do not go to the gym. I take long <laughs> walks every day. I walk several miles every day. So perhaps that is, uh, that is a, why I listen to the music I listen to. So my two recommendations, I have two recommendations I'm going to make here in recommendation corner, both music for long walks. The first is, uh, the new EP by Manchester Orchestra, Friends of uh, the Pod. Friends it's of called the, Pod. the Valley of Vision. Uh, it's a record that really feels like an extension of their uh, previous rec- uh, record, Million Masks of God, uh, really kind of building on the more sort of atmospheric sound of that record. And this is a, a cool album as well because there is a film that accompanies it. It's a uh, 3D visual reality film that you can stream. I think it's on YouTube. Um, it's very trippy, like lots of nature scenes and office scenes. It kind of reminds me of like the kind of thing you would see like Pink Floyd put out around the time mm. of, of like Amagama, like that kind of stuff <laughs> where it's just slow pans across like landscapes and you feel instantly stoned when you look at it so that's a really cool record the other thing i have to recommend is a single it's the new single by a band that i love called rat boys Mm -hmm. uh the song is called black earth wisconsin incredible title i'm predisposed to like it say this is like prime hide and core (laughs) but in addition to the title this is a nine minute song in about Six minutes of it is guitar solo in the middle of the song. Just an incredible song. This is probably my favorite song of the year so far. I'm going to say that right now. It only came out yesterday, but I've been listening to the song constantly. I think it's so good. They haven't announced an album yet. I assume that there will be an album announcement coming soon. There do. This isn't just the standalone single, I don't think. Uh, But it makes me very excited uh, for what this record is, because uh, they haven't, you know, th- th- there are, uh, you know, hints of this kind of music on their previous records, but I feel like their their last record leaned more maybe like in the pop punk direction, because they also have like an all country vibe to their records as well, and mm-hmm. this is leaning more into the all country side, with like again just like awesome guitar solos going on. So I'm very excited for this album, but the song just a great single one of my favorite songs of the year so it makes me think of a uh, bull believer the uh kind of similar eight nine minute song right. that uh wednesday released prior to the announcement of their new record so i and i think that like rap boys ha- ha- appeals in a very similar way they're definitely like in a similar lane and i love wednesday but man this song this is this is my song of the year so far just it, it's so good they nailed it and rap boys Really nice people, really good band. They, I, I, I really like their other records as well. They're due. I, I, I cheer for them to make a great record and to really expand their audience because I think they deserve it. Really yeah, cool band. It's, it's funny because we t- they, they, they are highly associated with Wild Pink, a band that we talk about in very much the same way. Oh, yeah. Love that yeah. crew. Great Love crew. That crew. Good people, mm-hmm. great tunes. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 